in Ephesus, there were uh, a couple of magical names. Actually, there's this long tradition of six magical names in Ephesus uh, that were called upon. They were called the Ephesian letters. So let me pronounce this if I can. Askion, Kataskion, Lix, or Likes, I guess it's Lix, the Tetrax, Damnominius, that's a great one, and Asia. These were known as the Ephesian letters. What they were, they were the names of six powerful beings in Ephesus who could be called upon for help and protection. Plutarch, the writer, the philosopher, this is what he said. He says that the, the Magi, it's like the sorcerers, do you remember we're in Ephesians? I'm sorry. Dark, dark powers, right? Okay. So there's Magi, there's sorcerers who instructed people who are possessed by evil spirits to just keep repeating these names to yourself, and that's what will send the evil spirits away. Even athletes in Olympic games or just any games, athletes would wear these Ephesian letters as like, hey, th this God's going to help me. Uh, it seems like a, you know, seems like a, a European player come to the NBA, right? Kataskion, if that was on your jersey. Uh, but, but they would put that on their, their clothes so they'd have some success. Now, get into this a little bit. There's three, three different kind of conjurings or three different things that, that have been found, archaeological digs of papyrus during this time. And this is what some things said. I conjure you by the great names. Another one, you... These holy names and these powers confirm and carry out this perfect enchantment. Now this one. A phylactery, a bodyguard against demons, against phantasms, against every sickness and suffering to be written on a leaf of gold or silver or tin or hieratic papyrus. When worn, it works mightily. A fit is the name of power of the great God and a seal, and it is as follows. It gives all those magical names. These are the names. we're always going to cry out to someone to save us. Across the world and throughout human history, we've expressed it differently, but when we're really sinking in the sinking sand, we call to someone for help. We cry out to someone for help, whether it be a friend, a deity, uh, a supernatural force, or yourself. You cry out to someone for help popular now? The universe, right? Well, if you believe God and define God in moralistic, therapeutic deism, deistic ways, that, that he's only about you just abiding by the morals, and he's there for therapeutic to help you feel better and feel happy, but he's a deist, he's far off distant. If you believe that, you know what's really easy to do? is just to switch that God to the universe, right? Because that's an impersonal, really uncaring God that you've been thinking of, considering in the past, so just switch to the universe, right? It's kind of the same thing. If you need something, go put it out in the universe. Instead of supplication, like put it on your vision board, put it on your wall, right? And maybe the universe will make it happen. We're all going to cry out to someone or someone to help us, to protect us, to save us. Verse 8 of Ephesians 2. If you have a Bible, please look at it with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the chairs, as Ryan said. Page 1036, is that correct? Okay. Ephesians 2, I want you to see this, please, with me. Verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It 
is God's gift. So, saved by God's grace. God has gifted us salvation. That's what he's saying. Now, to, to, to pull back from where we've been, I want you to think about Ephesians 2. You know what he said? That you, you, you were this and now you're this? You remember that? So recall it with me. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now you're alive together with Christ. You were sons of disobedience. Now you're raised up with Christ. You were children of wrath. Now you're seated with Christ. You were children of wrath. Now you're recipients of generous mercy. You were children of wrath. Now you're recipients of his great love. You're children of wrath, but now you're recipients of God's kindness. You were children of wrath, but now you're trophies of God's grace. That's what he said up to this point. And now he doubles down, says it again, says you are saved by God. God is gracious to you. And then Paul also says that this grace comes through faith. And this is the human response, belief, that we believe. Uh, I've been talking about this the past two weeks, but, but faith is the instrument that we lay hold of Christ. But hear me. Faith is not a work. It's a gift. Now, throughout church history, people have debated this and argued about this and wrestled with the, the grammar and, and, and all these things. But here's what's happening. The grammar really indicates that the whole of salvation is to be viewed as a gift. Meaning, the whole thing's a gift. Grace is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Faith is a gift. John Stott said, we should never think of salvation as a transaction in which God provides grace and we provide faith. He says, no, it's all grace. It's all grace. We were dead and had to be awakened to believe. So all of it is a gift from God. This is how Luke captured it in his narrative in Acts. In Acts 18, 27, he says, Apollos helped those who had believed through grace. So because salvation is divine gift, it cannot be earned. It cannot be attained. It cannot be accomplished. You cannot grasp onto it by anything that you think, feel, or do. It cannot be earned. It's a gift. So your, your moral efforts, your religious activity can't earn salvation and you can't save yourself so if you are in christ this should be another encouraging comforting and humbling word to you is that we were not saved because we're smarter than others or you're prettier than others or more gifted than others our salvation was the work of god God showed us and lavished on us his astonishing grace. What is grace? Some guys have, have tried to bullet down to God's riches at Christ's expense. I'm good with that because that's what it means. You have been lavished with the riches of God's grace at the expense of the son being put forth as a substitute for you. That's grace. Unmerited favor, unceasing love. Now, the folks in Ephesus were crying out for Ascion, Kataskion, 
Tetrax to rescue them. Crying out, putting dumb idols on their chest, repeating Tetrax, 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 just getting so uh, wound up in it. Why? Because evil spirits are beating me down, scaring me, uh, and, and so I'm going to appeal to this name. Someone told me to appeal to this name, and if I say it enough, and I stay in it enough, then I'll finally find some relief from these demons, and the truth is, those gods are demons, so the demons are not going to get rid of demons, so you can't calling out Tetrax to save you from what's also energized by demons. So they're hopeless. Do you hear me? And, and, and just what I'm trying to paint is that is all of us. We're all there. Without Christ, we're the same people calling out not tetrax, but some deed or some person or some celebrity or some friend or yourself to save you. And it will not. You will not. Any other deity will not. Any other force will not protect you and shove and cast off demons from you. So what a terrible place to put your faith in these dumb idols, these fake names. So go back to Ephesians 1. One page back. Ephesians 1, verse 20. He exercised God, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Far above. Stop thinking about just place only. Think about position. Far above. Who's the highest in authority? Who has the greatest position? Who is the sovereign Lord who sovereignly cares for you? Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given. Katastion can't do nothing. Jesus can. Tetrax is a weak title. Nothing. Jesus Every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church. So not only is Katastion a weak name, Katastion has gotten crushed and trampled over by Jesus. So why keep crying out to false gods and false saviors to rescue you after you've become a Christian if you know they're nothing, they're void, they're vanity? There's one name above all names, one Savior who is true and lovely, who towers over all the weak names of the earth. Paul says it differently, but the same in Romans 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the, scriptures, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Can, can we back up and you feel that? If you put your hope in Tetrax, if you put your hope in the universe, if you put your hope in secular atheism, if you put your hope in moralistic therapeuticism, all these things, I could keep listing off. If you put your hope in them, you will be put to shame. It's going to be to your shame, to your embarrassment, to your destruction. But, (laughs) Scripture says, everyone who believes on Jesus will not be put to shame, since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. Richly blesses. Go back to Ephesians 1. You've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's one name. There's one name. And I know that's exclusive, but all religions and all ideologies are exclusive, and I would argue that ours is the most inclusive exclusive, right? Because we're saying there, there's nothing else to do. There, 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 there's not works, to, there's not 12 steps to get to them. There, there's not stairs that you have to climb up a mountain to get to the sage-wise God that will give you direction. No, he's come to you. He climbed off his throne, went down the, the, the ladder, Jacob's ladder himself, and came to heaven for you. So if you're, if you're not a Christian, <laughs> what I'm saying is, who are you going to call upon because you're calling upon someone or you will to rescue and save you? And if it's any of these Ephesian letters, any of these false gods, you will be put to shame. So who are you going to put your faith in? Who are you going to entrust your heart to? Charles Spurgeon said, he who believes himself able to save himself has never known the meaning of a broken heart. He said this a couple hundred years ago, but if you're not a Christian, will you hear me? Will you listen to this? This, he who believes himself able to save himself has never known the meaning of a broken heart. This who imagine that reformation can atone for the past or secure righteousness for the future are not... are not yet ravenly brought to know themselves. No, my friends, we must be humbled in the dust and made to look for all in Christ or else we shall be deceived after all. There's one name. To put your faith, your hope, your life, and your eternity in any other name or any other deities or any other person's hands is to be put to shame and to be deceived. Your, your selfishness, your addictions, your anger, your shame will ruin you. Will ruin this life. You know it. And it will send you into destruction. But God is rich in mercy and great in love. We come back to the crux of this letter but God who is rich in mercy. There is one name above every name that changes everything. Jesus is Lord. So he tells you that (laughs) salvation is of God. He's calling you to believe in Jesus now. Confess him as your Lord. Believe that God raised from the dead and be saved. I mean, receive this gift from God. Stop trying to save yourself and earn his love and just receive what Christ is offering to you. Salvation is a gift. It'd be super weird at Christmas if your kids started doing a lot of stuff leading up to Christmas to really get a good gift. It happens. But it's a weird thing for us. It's a difficult thing for us. Why? Because it it gnaws at our pride and arrogance because we do want to save ourselves. It is a shot at our hubris to say, you cannot get to me, but I've come to you. But that's what it is. It's a gift to receive. Verse 9. 
not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So here's the big idea. Because God gifted us salvation, we boast in Jesus, not ourselves. That's the point. Because God has saved us, because God has given us salvation, we boast in Jesus, not us. Again, your works didn't earn God's love. God's love sent Jesus into the world to come after you, to be born as a virgin, to live the most full, joyful, loving, perfect life, died a torturous death in your place, and rose again powerfully from the dead, and is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father. So there's nothing in us to boast in. It's in Jesus' works, not ours. It's in his perfect life, not in your moral perfection, because it's not there. It's in his holiness and his heart full of love that he said, yes, everything to the Father that then gets gifted to you in salvation, where now you are seen as righteous because you're united to Christ. That's who we are. Your works didn't make this happen. The glory goes only to God in salvation. All of the glory belongs to you. Why do we start off with you deserve it? Because your hallelujah, all of your praise, all of your thanks, all of your joy should be going to God because he does deserve it. Because of this. Because of this gift. Paul says it well when he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? In fact, if, <laughs> in fact you did receive it. Why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? <laughs> and then, he says, the one who boasts, in 1 Corinthians 1.31, this just makes it epically clear. The one who boasts must boast in the Lord Jesus. That's what we're to boast in. Because salvation for us is not a feat, accomplishment that we attained. It is grace. It is unmerited favor. It is unceasing love. It is actually not unconditional love. It's contra-conditional love. Contrary to the conditions, we broke all the conditions and he still loved us. So, we are to boast in the one who gifted us this, the one who earned it. What, what it's like is, what it's really like is that you <laughs> are on the worst sports team ever and all you've known is losses. And then Jesus shows up and somehow joins your team and is the all-star the ringer and now all you do is win like you your 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 song leading up to the game is dj Khaled. all i do is win because that's it just jesus is on my team if you're united to jesus salvation is yours why because he's on your team not not because you're really good at rebounds Jesus doesn't need you, Dennis Robinson, to help his team. Jesus carries this team on his back just like the cross. That's what it means for him to love you. So he's got you. He holds you. So let's boast in him, not in ourselves. We were not saved. We'll never be saved or kept saved by our good works of service, but by Jesus' work of service. And so what I'm saying is that I, I don't want us to boast in our gifts, whether it's 
cocky self-confidence before God, or it's arrogance towards unbelievers, or uh, it's competition with other Christians. Humility, and what we'll see in a little bit, love is the perfect bond of unity. But threats to unity are self-righteousness and pride. Now, let, let, me, let me make a little side note, and we'll come back to it. We're going to talk about it next week. We're going to look at verse 10 next week, just verse 10. But after saying that our works can't save us, Paul says, he states really the importance of works. Works can't save you, but works are important. He does not want us to think that works are unimportant. He states that works simply are not the root of our salvation but the fruit of our salvation, okay? The reformers used to say, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Does that make sense? We are not saved by faith plus works, but by a faith that does work. We have a living faith, a functioning faith, and so you're saved by Jesus' works, so that you'd be his workmanship, you'd be his statue, you'd be his work of art that then would be a blessing, gracious, working, serving to the body, to the family, to others. Or to just say it very clearly, you were saved by God's work and you were saved for God's work. That's the distinction. We'll look at it more next week. But coming back to boasting. Because God gave us salvation, we boast in Jesus, not ourselves. This is supposed to be humbling. This is supposed to lead you to humble yourself under the sovereign care of the sovereign Lord. And as we get into this letter further in, verse, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see that arrogance and self-righteousness, arrogance and self-righteousness are enemies of unity. If we are all boasting in ourselves, how will we be united and loving? So th there's massive implications here in what, what Paul's saying between us and God, but also between us, one another. John Calvin said we are a factory of idols. I'll take that and just kind of tweak it a little bit. We're all righteousness seekers. We're always looking at something or someone to validate us, to make us okay, I mean, not even bad things. Think of some of the good things that we do, and then we put uh, our hope in it. It becomes our righteousness that we stand on before God. Here's a few examples. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone else should. Is mercy good? Yes, mercy's good. You know what's not good? Finding your righteousness in mercy. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date people who do. I guess you're an Aggie. Uh, too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. I'm sorry. But Aggies create a lot of legalistics. Ah, uh, sorry. <coughs> I just slid out. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Anum's great. Uh, number three, financial righteousness. I manage money wise and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Do, do you hear what, what, what this should sound like, I think, is what you say to yourself and, and how you operate. This is how we function with people. 
When we build our lives on our righteousness, job righteousness, I'm a hard worker, so God reward me family righteousness. Because I do right things, I do things right. As a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Goobers can't do anything. Look at these wild kids. Someone should buy them a leash. Number six, theological righteousness. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, more cultural savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Flexibility. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Now, imagine what if your community group was consumed with their own self-righteousness? What would happen? What if everyone in your community, your friends, were living like this? Gross. That, that's, that's what I think. That's how I feel when I think if this person's over here uh, looking down on the rest of us because they're, they've put their righteousness in, in how they handle their money and this person's over here is doing the same with their parenting, then we're all trying to be better than others so that we can validate ourselves when we don't need to be better than others because we're already validated by the love of God for us in Christ. So, because he humbly came to you and gave his love for you, you can humble yourselves to others. You don't need to earn your righteousness, but receive it. So you can walk in love and put on humility towards your group, not arrogance. Colossians, which is a, a fantastic partner to read with Ephesians. As we're studying Ephesians, I encourage you to, to read Colossians as well, but Colossians 3, verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's the super glue of unity for our church, is love. Arrogance is the super shattering of our church. Self-righteousness is what will break a, a piece of glass in a thousand pieces and break it all apart. That's what would happen if this roots in us, if it stays in us, if this is how we operate and function. And Paul is just begging and pleading with us to say, no, 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 stop boasting in yourself, but boast in Jesus so you can put on love and humility and care for one another. Christian humility, John Piper says, Christian humility flourishes in the human soul when we're standing in front of a window that looks onto the Himalayas of Christ's grandeur. And Christian humility vanishes when we close the window and stand in front of a mirror trying to see the authenticity of our humility. I laugh because this is crazy. It's what we do, though. I'm talking about humility, and then we start just thinking about humility. I don't want you to think about humility. I want you to grow in humility. I think you need to, 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 to do something to, to continue to grow in this and humble yourself. But really, at the end of the day, open up the window and see the beauty and the majesty of Christ's grandeur. That's what will humble you. Coming back to, it's him who saved me, not me humbling. It's his works. It's his righteousness. It, it is his overflowing love. That's what I'm going to boast in. That's what I'm going to see. That's what I'm going to... Uh, uh, peer on. That's what I want to stare at. Not stare at myself in a mirror and think, am I really humble? Where am I, where am I not so? Oh, I am pretty humble. Which is like immediate pride, right? It's so weird. It vanishes. 
it flourishes when we're looking away from it to Christ, and it hides when we're looking directly at it. So, chapter 4 told us to live with all humility and gentleness with patience. But chapter 5 gets into particular roles. Husbands, wives, children, workers, bosses. And they're all to put on love and humility towards others. That may... It's really hard when you have a diverse group of people come into a family with different backgrounds and beliefs to, to really um, experience that unity. <laughs> but again, he's saying our righteousness and our family status and our love is not bo- based upon our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, our class, our background, our beliefs. The way of the world is to be great by lording your position and power over others. But if you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a worker, if you're a boss, if you're a child, that's not our way. Greatness for us is not to get to power as as fast as possible, then use that power however we see fit for our own gain not to lord it over others, not to, to keep fighting with other people because they have a different background than you or little things that, that may be a little different. No, no. <laughs> this is what Jesus says. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as ransom for many. When you're boasting in yourself, it's very hard to serve others. But when you're boasting in Jesus, serving others flows fluidly out of you. I say, who wants to be great? Be a servant. This is what he means in action by humility. That I'm going to consider you more than myself. So what? I'm going to come to serve you. I'm going to humble myself and not be self-righteous and be looking down on you because people that look down rarely serve those underneath them. And if they do serve them, it's usually patronizing. Okay? So we're not going to look down with the superiority built upon our righteousness that we built our own efforts. No, it's not from our works so we can't boast. I'm going to boast in Jesus. I'm going to boast in Jesus' life. I'm going to boast in Jesus' love. I'm going to boast in Jesus' power. I'm going to boast in Jesus' heart. I'm going to boast in Jesus' kindness. I'm going to boast in Jesus' mercy, in Jesus' sacrifice. I'm going to boast in Jesus' glory. I'm going to boast in Jesus for you. I'm going to boast that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Because God gifted us salvation, we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Jesus forever bragging and staring upon the the beauty of his manifold perfections and glory. Look to Christ. If you're not a Christian, look 
to Christ. If you're a prideful, arrogant Christian, look to Christ. If you've been beat down by other people who have seen themselves as superior and have looked down on you, that wounds, that hurts, there needs to be forgiveness, but Jesus doesn't look down on you condescendingly. He came to you to say, face to face, I love you. I'm for you. That's who we're going to boast in. That's the one that keeps us together. That's the one who has secured unity for us and who also allows us to experience that unity. So Jesus, I praise you. I boast in you. It's you. When I was 16, I was an idiot. I still am. It's you who have saved me. It's you who awakened me to see your glory. It's you who have sustained me. It's you when I've failed so often and so many times in these past two decades, Lord, you've kept me. It's your power that holds on to me. It's your promises that will come to pass. But I pray that you would lift our eyes by the power of your spirit because that's what you say you would do, spirit, is to magnify, to exalt, to show off the splendor of Jesus. So I ask that you would do that right now. With these words, in this room, would you lift our hearts, lift our eyes to boast in you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.